more towards the church than and not so much evangelistic, if you will. But I think it's important for the church to be encouraged. I think it's important for the church to be challenged at times. And believe me, this message this week really hit me right between the eyes. And so you'll see what I'm talking about in just a minute. But before I read our primary text from Romans 12, I'd like to read our verse of confession from Psalm 145, verses 17 through 20. And then we'll take a moment to pray and ask God to prepare our hearts for the Word today. Psalm 145. Father, we thank You again. The songs that we've sung and the Scripture we've read just reminds us that You are ever with us, that You care about Your people, Lord, and that You hear our cries. Lord, I pray today for those that are in need here in the church and those watching online, Lord, that You would just be with them. There's so much sickness and just so many broken things happening in people's lives, and I just ask You, Lord, to just remind them today as they, as they worship You, Lord, that, that You are good, that You are for them, and You are for Your people and that, uh, Lord, we can count on You to come through, that You're faithful in all Your ways. So, Lord, remind us of that, and give us strength and encouragement. Most of all, as we talked about in Sunday school, give us the joy that we can have as true believers, Lord, that know You, and that have seen You be faithful time and time again, Lord. Restore unto us that joy if we've lost it, and help us, Lord, to worship You today in spirit and truth. We give You all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, if you're not already there, Romans chapter 12, as we get into this series called Birthmarks of a Believer. And this first lesson, or this first sermon, I should say, is one, and I, I just almost have to smile sometimes how God works things out. When, when Brother Jeff and I started the new Sunday school books for the spring, I told him that the second session, which is where we should be technically right now, was about, you guessed it. Jesus coming back, and so it fit in perfectly with the series that I was doing at the time, which was the seven churches in Revelation. So I asked Jeff if we could just switch it around and do the second session first, and this session we're doing now is what we should have started with. And so I've had this idea, God has put this on my heart months ago about these series, and so, you know, I had obviously didn't even have the Sunday school book at that time, and so we open up this morning the Sunday school lesson, chapter 4, a life of love. And the message today from our series, the first message is love that's from above. So, I mean, God just kind of puts things all together. And, and when you listen to Him, He just, I mean, everything just comes together. And I always just have to kind of smile and say, well, God, I, I see that. I see what you did there. You know, so it's a, it's a blessing. And I pray this message is a blessing to you. So let's stand together. We're only going to read two verses this morning from Romans 12, and then we'll pray and get into it today. Romans 12, we're going to just read verses 9 and 10. The Bible says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Father, we pray today that Your Word would penetrate our hearts, Lord, that it would not just be things that we hear, but commands for us to obey, Lord. Pray that we would see the love that You have for us and seek to live out that love towards others each and every day, Lord. Help us in our weakness and our, our shortcomings, Lord, to be able to do that. And we'll give you the praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I was thinking a lot about when I read these passages of Scripture and started putting it together. You know, we live in a time, and we've talked about this somewhat off and on over the years, and I think a lot of it has to do with social media, but I, I don't want to just blame everything on social media all the time. But I feel like we live in a time where relationships 
are harder to get started and harder to maintain than they've ever been. And I'm not talking about an intimate relationship with like a spouse. I'm just talking about relationships in general, getting to know people, uh, getting people to trust, getting people to have time even to gather together. There's a lot of things that go into relationships and it just seems like we're so busy, we're so disconnected. Perhaps social media has caused us to think that all those friends that you have on Facebook are really friends and they're not. And so we've kind of traded that virtual reality for the real thing. And uh, so I don't know exactly what the answer is. Maybe it's a combination of all that. But I think that relationships today are really difficult. It's really hard to get those nurtured and started. And that's why we're working so hard here at the church to try to present opportunities so that relationships can hopefully begin to be formed and strengthened if they're already there. But I want you to think about something. I want you to think about all the way back in the very beginning of time, in the beginning in Genesis. We obviously know the story. We know that God created and He placed Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave them one command that they couldn't do, and that was to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we also know, He said, on the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And they ate of it, and they didn't physically die, but they did die spiritually. And that death is what I want us to think about, because that death, while not physical in the moment, created a separation. It broke a relationship. Before that, they only knew a relationship that was perfect in every way. And because of sin, their relationship with God is severed, and every single human being that has ever lived's relationship has been severed with God. And because of that, it trickles over into our day-to-day relationships with others. Sin causes us to struggle to have relationships, not only with God, but with the people around us. Now, let me, let me give you some, some obvious scriptures that I think you know, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We believe that the Bible teaches that death is not the end of existence. Death is not annihilationism, as Jehovah's Witness and some uh, denominations or cults teach. We believe that death is a transition into eternity, that death is a separation. We've all had the unfortunate experience of attending a funeral. And we gather around, if the casket is open, we gather around our loved one and we get to pay our final respects to that person. But that body is not that person. The Spirit has left that person to either go to one of two places, depending on if they were a believer or not. And they will one day receive a new body to go with that Spirit. But death is not the end, my friends. And we need to understand that many times we live as though this life is all there is and death is just the period. And it's not. Period is, or the death is only a comma. And it's leading us into something else. And we have to be prepared for that. The Bible tells us for believers to be absent from that body when we physically die, to be absent from that body is not the end. It's to be present with the Lord. That is the beginning of eternity for us as believers. But for an unbeliever, that sin and that death that separated you from God in this life will carry over into eternity. And you're not only separated from Him now, but you will be separated from Him for forever. And that's the seriousness of this. Let me read to you a a scripture from Isaiah 59 verse 2 that talks about this idea of sin separating us so that this spiritual death is a separation. In Isaiah 59 2, 
God says, your iniquities, your sins, your transgressions have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Now that doesn't mean that God was clueless to what you said. It's that He turns a blind eye to you, if you will, until you deal with your sins. And so there's a separation there. And I would argue that it's impossible for us to have a deep relationship with people that we don't truly love. If we don't really love those people, and now remember, I'm speaking to believers here. I'm speaking to the church. But I don't believe that we can truly have a deep relationship with people that we don't love. And we can't love people if we don't know them. And so when we think about this separation that has gone on in these relationships, I want us to understand that when we came to Christ, we became new creatures. Amen? We're not the same as we used to be. And so one of the surest signs that we are growing in our conformity or our sanctification to Christ is the way that we love will change. The way that we love Him and the way that we love people has to change. It has to. So I think it's important for us as we get into this message today, we have got to understand what love is, biblically. Because the world has certainly taken that word and twisted it and turned it into something that it's not. And I think a lot of times, just because we live in that culture, it's easy for some of that to rub off on us, even if we don't necessarily believe it. I think we just kind of get in a pattern, if you will, of saying certain things and even acting in certain ways. And so the world defines love as primary and primarily an emotional type of thing. It's a physical thing. That's why so many people can fall in and out of love so easily. Because they base it solely on emotion. They base it solely on what makes them feel good. What makes them feel happy. If the object of our lives, guys, is to just be as happy as you can and to get everything that brings you and you alone contentment, then that is an adequate definition of love. Go out and put, you, put number one first and live for you. But that is not the way at all that the Bible describes love. It's exactly the opposite. We talked about this in our Sunday school class this morning. Biblical love puts Jesus first. It puts others first. It's sacrificial. It's unconditional. All those things go into it. It's a love that would rather serve others than be served. That's not the way that the world lives. But as a follower of Christ, if you're going to emulate Him in your life, you have got to see that that is all that Jesus did while He was on earth. He never put Himself first. He came to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father was that He would lay down His life For the sheep, Jesus did that obediently. He loved the people that were His. And He loved sinners. He went to them. He shared with them the truth. He didn't say, well, whatever you're doing is fine. It doesn't matter. Just enjoy life. He called them out. But He did so in love. He called them to repentance. He called them to a real relationship with Him. Something better than what the world could offer. Jesus said something in John 13, 34, shortly before His crucifixion. And I want us to think about what Jesus said because it will fly in the face of the way that the world talks about love. If the world says that love is just an emotion, if it's just this physical thing, if it's just for me and me alone, then explain to me what Jesus is saying here in John 13, 34. He says there, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. 
So Jesus gives us the example. He sets a standard there. He says, if you want to really love, look at me. Look at me and look what I've done. Look at me and how I live my life. Look at me and what my mission is. If you really want a definition, don't go to the dictionary. Look at the person of Jesus Christ. There is your definition of love. But I'll take it a step farther. Do you see what he said at the beginning of that verse? A new commandment I give you. That means then that love is just not some spontaneous thing, but that it is a decision. It is an act of the will. It is a choice that we must make. And that is why agape love, which is the Greek word for this supernatural kind of love, is something that we cannot muster up on our own, guys. Because let's be honest. I shared this, Jeff asked the question in Sunday school, and this was my answer. But I didn't want to go too in-depth, Jeff, because I didn't want to preach the sermon before I preached the sermon. But agape love is an unconditional type of love. But if we're honest, for many people that we come in contact with, we make judgments about them before we ever know them. We look at the external. We look at maybe what we've heard about them, even though we don't know them, if, it's, if we've heard other rumors or gossip. There are so many things that can come into play that shape and mold our thoughts about that person rather than just going into it with the idea that I'm just called to love that person. Whether they're worthy or whether they're not worthy. Right? Because guess what? Who in this room was worthy of the love of Jesus Christ? But who in this room hasn't been offered the love of Jesus Christ? You see? He loved unconditionally. I'm in big, big trouble. You're in big, big trouble if we have to be worthy of it first. None of us are worthy. And yet Jesus unconditionally comes with an offer of salvation to all who would repent of their sins and trust Him. That is the type of love that He sets. But this isn't optional, guys. We can't look at certain people and say, well, God, if you only knew, though, they get on my last nerve and I just, I can't love them. I can't do it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can through Christ because Christ loves that person. And if we're to love like Jesus, we can do no less. We're called to love our enemies <clears throat> even. And we'll, I'll look at that here in a moment because I know that this is hard this morning. I, I, I'll be honest with you. You know, some of the most basic concepts of Christianity are the very hardest things for us to do. Love our neighbors. Forgive one another. Right? Those are things that, I mean, the Bible says almost every page you can find something about those things. And yet, no matter how long you're a Christian, none of those things are easy. It's still tough to love people. It's still tough to forgive people that have wronged you. But they're commands. They're not just suggestions. And we have to look to Christ and His example. We have to rely on Christ and the Holy Spirit within us to be able to even do this. Because Jesus would come and He laid, he laid down His life for us. I mean, He laid down His life for the religious rulers that were crying out, crucify Him. He laid down His life for the Roman guards that were nailing the nails into His hands and His feet. He died for the ones that were out in the crowd laughing and mocking Him. And He died for you and me that wanted nothing to do with Him. When He called to us, we turned away from Him. We love our sin more than we love Him. And yet He continues to show us grace and mercy and love. That's the example we have, guys. 
So let's look at this text today and let's, let's look and ask God. And listen, my, my hope today is that you don't focus, because when, when we look at this stuff, I think if we're honest, if we, if we said grade yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, if we're really honest with this thing, we're probably going to be way down on the scale. And so my goal of these messages is not necessarily to discourage you, but to show you just how far we have to go and to see that there is so much room for growth. And if, if, if we will just put these things to practice, you will see, sometimes do you get stuck in a rut? Do you just feel like you kind of hit a, hit a spot and you're just kind of in neutral? You're revving up the engine, but you're not going anywhere? I think if, I think if we really look at these things and, and take an honest evaluation over the next few weeks and try to apply these things, I think you'll see yourself come out of that rut and you'll start to see yourself going up again. I really believe that's my prayer anyway for all of us because I think it's easy to get stuck in a rut, in a routine sometimes. So listen to what he says in verse 9 again. And I'm going to break these down just kind of into, into portions instead of reading the whole verse. He says, number one, let love be genuine. The King James uses a word that we don't use much in our English anymore, but it's a really good word when you understand what it means. And, and the King James says, let love be without dissimulation. The, I believe the New King James and the New American Standard, which I put on the screen there, translate it best, at least more literally, and that is without hypocrisy. When you think about hypocrisy, the word hypocrites meant an actor. So have you ever seen those sometimes when they show a picture of a movie theater and it has the two masks, one is sad and one is smiling? Well, that's the idea of this word hypocrite. It's somebody that puts on a mask. It's somebody that is living one way but pretends to be somebody else. Ever met a person like that? You ever been that person? Yeah, yeah. So let love be genuine. Now here's the question. How can our love, how can something as beautiful as love be hypocritical? How on earth can we have a hypocritical type of love? Let me read to you what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5. He says to Timothy there, he says, The aim of our charge is love, now listen to what follows, that issues, number one, from a pure heart, that means it's free of corruption. There's nothing corrupting that kind of love from a pure heart and a good or an honorable conscience. So your conscience is clear. There's nothing holding you back from this kind of love. And a sincere faith. The word sincere there is the same word we see in our text today from Romans 12.9. All of those things that Paul says and what he is saying here in Romans 12.9 is this. Our love must be weighed not by what we see externally necessarily, but the motivation behind it. The motivation behind your love is what really matters to God. Because you can do and say the right things and not be right in here. You can grin and smile in somebody's face and under your breath say, I hate this person. I can't stand this person. God, why did I have to run into them and Myers? I just wanted to come in here and get my stuff. And I ran into this guy. It's so good to see you. And you're thinking, oh, it's not. It's the last person on earth I wanted to see. Do you see the conflict there? Do you see that what's going on in here and what's coming out of here are not together? There's a problem in here. We can do the right stuff out here. That's what religious people do. Religious people do all the right stuff. But born again people have a right heart. And then the right stuff comes out. 
And so if you're here today and you think, man, I, go, I can go through the motions with the best of them and I can, I can talk the talk and, and do all that stuff, but deep down, I don't know. I, I don't know. Pastor talks about stuff and I don't know if I've ever really had a heart change. Stop going through the motions and get the real thing. If you come to Jesus, you don't have to fake it anymore. When He comes to live inside of you, things will change and continue to change for you. And so it's, it's about our motives not putting on a mask and pretending to be something that we're not. If your heart's not right, the, the answer is to repent and ask God to give you a heart that matches your actions. To match so that the two work together. Jesus said of people like that, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You don't want a heart that's far from Jesus. You want your heart to be near to Jesus because then it will be changed, it will be softened. It will seek and desire to live like Him. I think one of the greatest examples of somebody that showed a hypocritical type of love is Judas. Judas Iscariot. He walked with Jesus. He, he claimed to love Him and serve Him. He, he was intimate with the other disciples. And yet on the night of, the, of, of Jesus' betrayal, what does Judas do? He comes up to Him and He gives Him one of the greatest external signs of, of love that we show in society. He comes up and kisses him on the cheek and drives the knife into his back as he does so and betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a slave. He sells him for his own benefit. What a hypocritical example of somebody that on the outside did all the right things, but whose heart was never changed. May we never be like Judas, but may we always try to be like Jesus. John wrote these words. John, the, the one that, that Jesus loved, the, the most intimate probably of all the disciples, he says this in 1 John 3, 16-18. Here's a good litmus test, if you will. By this we know love, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart, Against him, here's the question, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. If we see a need and we can meet that need, and we close our heart to that person, do we really love them? Or are we just offering them lip service? Love, listen, I think one of the reasons why love is so difficult is love can be messy. Love can be very messy. If you want to get involved in someone's life, it takes time, it takes heartache, it takes patience. And a lot of times people just don't want to commit that much. If you've ever walked through, if you've ever walked through a season with an addict, you know how hard that is. You know how difficult it is to love that person unconditionally yet to have boundaries for your own well-being and safety, to see the manipulation, to see the heartbreak, to see the agony, where all you want to do is help that person, but they don't want to help themselves. It's exhausting. And most of the time, that's why people just wash their hands of an addict. And they say, well, they made their bed lie in it. It's their choice. They want help. There's help out there. It's hard because it's messy. And if you're going to walk with somebody through life and love them, 
you're going to get a little of that dirt on you. You just are. If you want to stay neat and clean, you'll, you'll just have to hide out in your house, but you'll miss out on the opportunities to love people like Jesus did. Jesus wasn't afraid to go where it was messy. He went where it was messy. He looked for the mess. He found me in my mess. He found you in your mess. And so thank God that He didn't avoid the messy people. Right? And we have got to be willing, if we're going to be a true follower of Jesus sometimes, to lay aside our pretty, pretty clothes and our perfectly permed hair and get down in the trenches and get dirty. We're going to have to. He says if you're going to love, it's got to be genuine. It's got to be real. If you don't have a real love today, my friends, you can have it when you meet Jesus Christ and you walk with Him and abide with Him. Not only does He say our love should be genuine, but He says that that love ought to cause something to happen in our life. It ought to cause many things. But He says at the second part of verse uh, 9, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So we've got a, we've got a contrast there. Abhor the evil and cleave or cling, hold tightly to what is good. The word abhor is a Greek word. It's two Greek words, actually, that come together to make the one word. One of the Greek words means to separate, and the other means something that's hated. So it's to separate from the hated or the wicked thing. That's the idea, to separate yourself. And on the flip side, to hold fast to something means to cement together. Those are the things that you want to be united with. So when we, when we think about that, there are things in life that we ought to separate ourselves from. There are people, hear me, there are people in life that we ought to separate ourselves from. There are things in life that we should be knit together with. There are people in life that we ought to be knit together with. You say, well, that sounds like an oxymoron. How can we, how can we in one thing, separate ourselves from people, and on the same sense, unite ourselves with people and still love everybody? We'll look at that. We'll look at that. But here's the thing I want you to understand. Not only is love from God, but the standard also is from God. And He defines what is good and what is evil. Not us and not the world. That's why Paul would write just a few verses before our verse today in Romans 12 too. He says, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And listen to what he says here. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. If you look to the world to tell you what's good, you are going to have a view of things that is in opposition to the Word of God. And that's why today it is so difficult for faithful churches to remain steadfast, and that's why so many have compromised. Because we can see the persecution on the horizon. We can see that we are now squarely in the minority, guys. If we stand for biblical values, if we stand on the Word of God and call sin, sin, we are in such direct opposition now to what the world says, that we are, Jesus said you will be hated, but I think for us, we never really thought that that was going to happen to us. Our generation, that America has been so excellent and so wonderful and such a Christian nation, that we would never see that, you're seeing it. You're seeing it. It's, it's going to happen and it's going to continue to happen. And so listen, the thing about it is, you can stand on the truth and still show love to the people that aren't standing on the truth. I think one of the problems with the church is that we have become so rigid 
doctrinally, which is good to stand on the truth, but that we don't always present or portray that love to people in a way that is attractive to them, that gives them hope, that shows them that we care about them. We just bang the drum and say, this is the sin, this is the sin, this is the sin. But we don't give them the alternative to say, here is Christ who is greater than that sin. Here is Jesus who can help you overcome that sin. If all we do is focus on the negative, they never see the beauty of the gospel. But on the flip side, if all we ever talk about is God is love, God is love, God will forgive you, God wants you, God desires you, and they never realize that their life is sinful, why would they give up their life to come to Jesus? They'll just tack Jesus onto their sinful lifestyle, at least in their mind, and they'll have the best of both worlds, which is not possible because you have to die to this world to have the next. And so that's why there's so much confusion. The world tells us that love is love. The world says whatever makes you happy, that's what you should pursue. And that flies in the face of what the Word of God says. Because for the world, there's no absolute standard, guys. Anything goes. We have gotten to a place in life where the individual's freedom is at such a high level that every single person determines what's true. We live in, and, and that's not new, guys. That's what's called relativism. It's a philosophy that's been around for centuries. But the idea is that George, whatever George believes is true for him, may not work for me, but it works for him. Loretta believes something else works for her. That's great. At the end of the day, we're all headed to the same place and all our beliefs are going to come full circle and everybody's going to sing kumbaya and it's just not going to work that way. That's just not how it goes, but that is the mentality of the world. But the Bible says in Proverbs 8, 13 that the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. You can't hate evil if you don't know what it is. You can't hate evil if you're celebrating what the Bible says is evil, but the world calls good. You see? There's got to be a standard. It can't be that everybody's right. It can't be that your truth is good and your truth is good and my truth is good. If there is even such a concept as good and evil, then you've got to be able to define it. There can't be a floating scale. There's got to be an absolute, guys. And the absolute is Jesus Christ. The absolute is His law. There is a perfect moral law and there's a perfect law giver. And because of that, we can know what the standard is. We can say, these things are evil. These things are sinful. We need to separate from those. These things are good. These things are glorifying to Christ. We need to unite ourselves to those things. And it's the love that we have for Jesus that ought to cause us to want to separate ourselves from the things that He died for and cling to the things that He says are good and righteous and worthy for us to follow. If you love Jesus, if you love anybody, would you continue to do things that hurt the person you claim to love? If the things that you watch and you listen to and you attend are things that Jesus died for and you enjoy them and justify them under the guise of entertainment, you are sinning against the God that died for you, that paid for those things. How can we enjoy and be entertained by things that Jesus calls wicked? We can't be, but we are because we refuse to give up things that we like, that bring us a little bit of contentment. There's enough stuff in life, guys, that you can find joy and contentment in without looking at garbage, without enjoying garbage, without seeking out things that don't honor Jesus. The problem is we don't want to scrape that stuff off our plate and we continue to allow it to linger in our lives. 
we can't be indifferent. If you want the love of Jesus to grow in your heart, you can't be indifferent. Remember the last church that we preached about in our series? The Laodicean church, the lukewarm church? We can't be lukewarm anymore. We've been lukewarm for too long, and that's why we're in the mess we're in now. We have got to wake up and decide. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. And you can't say, well, I'll, I'll just do this and this. And I'll get both. You've got to pick a side. And you've got to follow Jesus and not look back if that's what you're going to do. Paul says we've got to separate ourselves from certain things and certain people and cling to certain things and certain people. And then he goes on in verse 10 and he says this, and I'm going to read this from the New American Standard Version because, it, again, I like the wording that it brings out. I think it, I think it makes it really clear. He says... To be devoted. That word devoted means like a family member. Now again, not everybody has a good family life. So that for you may not be a very clear definition. But we're talking about how things ought to be. Not maybe how they necessarily are for you. But in God's plan, the family ought to be one of the most beautiful, loving, closely knit units on all of earth. It doesn't always work that way. Because again, what has separated us? Sin. Sin has destroyed everything that's supposed to be beautiful. But in the right situation, be devoted means to love like family to one another. And then he says, in brotherly love. We think about the city Philadelphia. The Greek word is Philadelphia. Basically the same thing, which means brotherly love. So the idea here that, that Paul is saying is, we ought to love like family. We ought to love because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. But here's the thing. Just take a minute and look around the room. Just look around for a minute. How many people in this room do you even know their first name? It's hard to love somebody you don't know. I mean, you can love them to, from a distance, but you can't get deeply involved in their life if you know nothing about them if you don't even know their name. And the thing about it is, when, when we think about Jesus, He was intentional. He didn't just wander around in the desert and just hope that people came to Him. And a lot of times, people, people do this in church. They'll come in, and they'll find their place, and they just sit like this. And then when the service is over, they run out the door, and then after about a month, they say, I don't know if that church is very friendly. Nobody talks to me. I mean, listen, it goes, a relationship works both ways, guys. You know, if you want, the Bible says if a man would have friends, he needs to show himself friendly. If you come in at, at, at 10.59 and you run out at 12.01, if I get done at that time, it's really hard for anybody to talk. And if you, you know, if you don't make any effort, so I, I say this to say this, if we're brothers and sisters in Christ, you've got to make the effort and we're trying to present opportunities for that to happen. But you've got to take advantage of those opportunities. I pray that that will be, that, that those things that we're trying to do, if, if, you will, if you will let the Word of God transform the way you think and take advantage of the opportunities, I pray that in the coming months, you will have a deeper love for this church than any church you've ever had in your life. Because we can worship together until the Lord comes back and not really know each other. We can, we can serve side by side and not really ever serve one another. And we can love from a distance, 
but miss out on just how wonderful a relationship can be when you really get to know people. When you really get to know them. So, so Paul says that we need to be devoted like family. Matter of fact, he says that is a, a test to see if you're really a believer. Listen to what 1 John 3.14 says. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Whoever does not love abides in death. This is a verse that always comes to mind when I hear people say, well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be at church to love God. Well, God says that the evidence that you love Him is that you love the brethren. And I don't know what Bible you're reading, but mine says that the brethren are commanded to gather together and worship on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And if you're sitting at home loving Jesus all by yourself, and all the rest of His people are here, you're disconnected from the body of Christ. Now, I know there's reasons why you can't. Oh, it's sickness, work, vacations. I'm not saying you should never ever miss a day of church. I'm talking about being absolutely able to come week after week and choosing not to because you don't feel like you need to gather with God's people. Listen, I am so thankful that we can live stream for our shut-ins. But I would like to chuck that thing out on Millville Avenue for the people that have just become lazy and watch it every week online. I'm going to say this, and I'm, I'm preaching about love, and I want to say this in love. If you watch every week online, and you're able to come, stress that, and you're able to come and you just keep worshiping online, you're not worshiping. You're watching television. You're watching television. You're watching us worship. Worship involves more than just going through the motions. Worship is an act of the entire body and will. And we have to gather together because you can't serve one another if you're isolated on your couch. You can't. It's impossible. And so I'm, in, I'm not saying that to belittle you this morning. I'm encouraging you, if you're watching and you've fallen into that rut, get up next Sunday if you're able and come join us in person. You're missed. And we want you to be a part of the body of Christ here as we worship. Because we don't get to choose our families, guys. It might be a little bit different if we did get to choose our families, but we don't. We're born into a family, and we're born again. In, now, we can in some degree choose our church, I, I would say. But you don't get to choose your family. And so when you look around, if you're a member here at this church, and you look around and you say, man, uh, some of these folks are okay, but I don't know. I don't know about some of them. They're a little bit, they're a little bit odd, including the guy up there in the pulpit. He's probably the oddest one of them all. I saw a church sign one time that said, Our church is like fudge. It's sweet with a few nuts. <laughs> that, that's probably true of any church you go to. Right? But God doesn't, again, that, love, that unconditional love doesn't say, Well, I love the sweet ones and avoid the nuts. It, it says we love them all. Right? As best as possible. As best as possible in the Spirit. We're commanded to do that. It's not an option. Let me give you the last, last portion of verse 12 and, and we'll close here. Or chapter 12, verse 10, I'm sorry. He says, not only should we love one another with brotherly affection, but we have to outdo one another in showing honor. I like the King James translation here. It says, in honor, prefer one another. Now when you read that, you think, well, that sounds like we're, we're making two different standards here. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this. In a nutshell, don't always wait for you to be praised 
you set the example to praise other people first. Don't always be looking to get the pat on the back. You be the one going around patting other people on the back. We don't do it for that. I hope not. That's not our motivation. But it's encouraging when you love somebody for them to say, hey, I recognize what you're doing. I see what you're doing and I just want you to know it's making a difference. It's appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for giving up so much time and putting so much effort and energy. It goes a long way, guys. I'm so thankful, and I don't do it for that, but I'm so thankful when I get those words of encouragement. To me, it, it lifts your spirit, and I hope it lifts yours. I try to offer those, and I could do a lot better. But I think if we all offered a little bit of encouragement to one another, it would go a long, long way. The Bible says we should rejoice with those who rejoice. And, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. We weep with those who weep. But it's good to rejoice with people too. It's good to encourage them. And so, I'll say this. In every church, there's a portion of people that just want to sit in the bleachers. They just want to be spectators. They're, they won't get involved. They, they, I don't know why, but they just don't get involved. And I'll just say this. If you've made up your mind that all you're going to do is sit in the seats and be a spectator, at least cheer. At least cheer. If you're not going to lift a hand and do anything else, cheer on the people that are. Because we need you, and I'm not going to stop through the Word of God calling you to get active. But in the meantime, while you're arguing with God about not doing things, cheer on the ones that are. They need that encouragement. And I believe that's a, what, what Paul is saying here. If, if we love that way, if our love is genuine, if we separate from evil things and cling to things that are good, if we love and get to know one another, like brothers and sisters in Christ, like family, not just I go to church with that person, but that person is my brother in Christ. That person is my sister in Christ. I love them. They can count on me to be there because when they have a need, I will drop everything and go to them because I love them. That's the kind of relationships that I believe church should have. And that's the kind of relationships I believe that we can have more of. I know we have a lot of those already, but I think we can have more of those. And finally, he says, like I said, don't, don't wait for somebody else to do it. Lead the way. Outdo one another. Outdo one another, he says, in showing honor. Guys, one of the greatest birthmarks of a believer, Paul started out with the biggest one, is how we love. How is our love this morning? Not just for God. Maybe that's dwindled. But how is our love for one another? Maybe there's a little bit too much of yourself in the way. I've found over the years that the biggest hindrance to me loving people is me. That I get myself in the way. And that I don't allow God to live through me. And it causes me to be selfish. And to put myself first too much. Maybe when you look around, maybe you've noticed yourself saying this more and more. When you look around at people and you think, my goodness, everywhere I look are just idiots. There's idiots everywhere. I get behind these stupid people every morning. They don't know how to drive. You're having this conversation with yourself, guys. You know you talk to yourself more than any other, any other person on earth. What, just stop for a minute and think about what your conversations are like. Not just with the driving thing, with anything. You know? Do you find yourself always aggravated at people? Are they always like just a, a burden to, to just get out of my way? If, if you've allowed yourself to sink into that, you may not even notice it. But your love for those people have dwindled. It has. Because in your mind, you're thinking, I'm right, I'm the only good driver, everybody else is stupid except me. That's not an attitude of love, that's pride. That's arrogance. It is. It's self-righteousness. If, 
if you see that in your life, my prayer is that you would ask God to fill you with more love and less judgment, less self-righteousness. Do you always put yourself before the needs of everybody else? Well, I can't make it to this thing. I can't do that thing because of, I always have something for me. Listen, you've got to take care of yourself. Jesus rested. There's times when you need to go out and enjoy yourself. Just spend a day with the family. Again, I'm not saying you should just always be at church. But every once in a while, it's nice to hear somebody lay aside a worldly thing to come to church. I, I've, I've, I've been pastoring for, I don't know, 18 years now almost, or in ministry anyway. And I don't know, I don't know if I've ever heard somebody say, you know what, Pastor? I had Bengals tickets on Sunday, and I give them away so I come to church. And there's nothing wrong with going to the Bengals game. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying, it's always like the worldly things take priority over the church. It's like there, anything that's going on on Sunday always takes priority over the church. And very rarely do people say, you know, I had this thing going on on Sunday, but I said I couldn't make it because I wanted to come to church. You know, every once in a while, I think it's important that we show our kids, our grandkids, and just show Jesus that he, he is number one. He's not way down here on the list when nothing else is going on. You know, he, he, can't, just be, he can't just be getting the leftovers all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I want to just say this as we close. I'm going to invite the praise team to come. The greatest example we have, guys, is Jesus Christ. If, if you're after this message, you still say, well, I'm not quite sure what pastors call me to do. I'm calling you to set Christ as your example. And I'm calling you to look around the room or look in your heart even and ask yourself, do I love like Jesus? Am I striving to love like Jesus? You'll never probably get to that point where you're perfectly doing it. But do you want to? I hope you do. I hope, husbands, you're loving your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, I hope you see Jesus in your husband so much that it causes you to fall in love with him all over again. Kids, I hope that you see your families living out Jesus and not just a hypocritical love. One of the biggest turnoffs to kids and why they leave the church is they see parents act one way in church and act a whole different other way outside of here. If, if that's you, go to your kids, repent, tell them that you've blown it and that you're going to try to start living so that what they see is real and not just an act. Guys, the call today is this. If your love is not where it ought to be, don't be satisfied. Ask God to give you a love like never before for Him and for His church, for His Word, for His kingdom, for the world out there that needs to hear the gospel. And I believe if we're honest about that and we ask God to do it, we'll see some amazing things happen in this body that will carry out into the world and make a difference. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today that You love us, that God is love. Greater love is no man in this, that He lay down His life for His friends. That God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Over and over again, the Bible declares and shows us what real love is. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's in the pursuit of Jesus for sinners. It's in the patience of Jesus for rebels that continue to run from Him. Lord, thank You for being a perfect example to us. Thank You for loving us when we don't deserve it. And today, Lord, I pray that all of us in this room would be convicted on one hand, but encouraged on the other. Be convicted to lay aside our sins, to admit that we don't love people like we ought to. But on the same hand, to know that we're able to grow in Christ and be challenged to do that, starting today. And most of all, if someone here in this room doesn't know Jesus in that love, that they would bow their knee today and call on Him and say, Lord, I've heard that You love me. I want to know it. I want to know You. And if they'll do that today, Lord, they can be saved. So have Your way in this invitation. We give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing.